it's uh, stirred, not shaken. That was right, wasn't it? Perfect. You're listening to On The Rocks Blog, the podcast here on Anchor FM. Stirred, but not shaken. Well, welcome back to On The Rocks Blog, the podcast. I hope you're all having a great day out there. I am Micah Hirschberger, and I'm here, as always, with Garrett Ashley Mullet. And Garrett, a lot of people have asked us about our tagline, which is stirred, but not shaken. And I feel like we should probably, you know, every once in a while, just kind of reinforce that and explain what we mean by that. Uh, It has some dual meanings. Right. Yeah, it does. And uh, actually, it's a play on the James Bond signature line, shaken, not stirred. And our meaning in saying stirred, but never shaken is that the events that we're talking about, the ideas that we're discussing and trying to unpack, trying to be better Christians and better men and honor God and facilitate others being more intentional and thoughtful in their Christian walk or in finding God's truth and the gospel. In all of that, we are stirred emotionally, internally. These things do affect us and they mean something and they resonate and we're we're captivated or we're concerned, but we're not shaken. We refuse to be shaken. We refuse to be afraid of men who can only kill the body and have nothing more that they can do to us. We choose to fear God. And in that is safety. And in that we have no reason to be shaken. We can't be moved. We go into him as our strong tower into his word as our refuge. And so that is what we mean by saying that we are stirred, but never shaken. Yes. And also that dovetails off of our name on the rocks. And people have asked about that too. And really on the rocks, I mean, there's the, the double meaning there of the, you know, that is a typical, uh, uh, you know, a drink when you ask for ice, it's on the rocks, but we wanted it more to signify, you know, our foundation is on the rock of God's word. I mean, the Bible says when you, when you build your foundation on, on solid foundation, uh, when the, when the rains came and the winds came, the man that built his house on God's word, that's the implication, uh, his house stood and the person who built it on the sand, their house washed away. And so our foundation is on the rock. It's also a play on words that the culture that around us is kind of on the rocks. It's, uh, it's in peril. And so our name and our tagline go hand in hand as being kind of a popular, there's kind of a popular slogan in there, but it's also, it's really more meant to, to signify that, no, we stand on God's word first and foremost. And because of that, when the winds and rains come, we're stirred, but we're never shaken from that foundation. Amen. Amen. Yeah. It's funny too. I found this really great thrift store, painting here last year i took josiah to uh lincoln park emporium here in greeley and there was this big painting i don't know who the painter was but uh, he painted this lighthouse scene with stormy clouds and obviously the ocean is all stirred up and it's kind of spring as it hits the rocks as the tide comes in and out and all that and so i bought it i think i paid 50 dollars for it which seemed like a really good deal to me 
and it hangs uh, in my bedroom. Actually, it kind of reminds me of the whole on the rocks idea that uh, we're trying to be a lighthouse here. We're trying to be, uh, you know, young men are decreasingly young, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, speak for yourself, I guess. <laughs> I'm 37. I'm not old. Um, yeah, no, we're we're young men still, or we were younger men when You're, we you were young at heart, at least. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. But, well, we but had, we're trying to be, we're trying to faithfully serve God. We're trying to facilitate others serving God. We're trying to pursue that prize at the end where we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So absolutely. Well, and I think it's fair to say too, we're not, we're not, uh, we're, we're laymen. We're not uh, seminary grads. We're not uh, trained pastors. Uh, but at the same point, we feel like a lot of the things that uh, we're talking about, a lot of the things specifically politics, things that divide us as a church, these are not uh, deep uh, issues that, oh boy, you need a thorough knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and uh, you know a lifelong study in these fields to be able to divine that. A lot of these are very simple principles that all that they require is for you to say, we believe that the Bible is God's word. We believe it's inerrant. We believe on this foundation we stand and then just stay true to that. And it's amazing, and we're going to be talking about this continuing on these podcasts here, how many times so many of our views become extremely controversial and divisive, and yet it's based on a very simple understanding of God's Word. So we ended our last podcast talking about the divisions in the church politically, and we responded to the claim that it's partisan politics that divide us by really saying, no, it's our view of Scripture that divides us. And I think that really begs the question then for this podcast, okay, then what do we as Christians do in the political sphere? How do we view political involvement? And I think there's a number of different, uh, I think a number of different answers to that question, a number of different viewpoints. But let's start with this notion that Christians should not engage. Let's eliminate that as a possibility that Christians should not engage in the political process. Would you respond to that one really quick? Cause I know you have a lot of thoughts on that. I do. Yeah. And that is some fertile ground for conversation. Indeed. I think of meat offered to idols as one uh, aspect of this disagreement within the church. And what I mean by that is the apostle Paul writes in the new Testament about the dilemma or the disagreement within the church about whether meat that has been consecrated or dedicated to a false god, if you go into the marketplace and you're going to buy meat for your family or for a church gathering or just for yourself or whatever, if you're buying meat from a vendor who is a pagan who has prayed over this meat and offered it to a false god, is that unclean? Is that an unholy thing? Are you taking part in this uh, ungodly, uh, idolatrous activity by buying that and eating it and consuming it? Well, in the early church, you had some Christians who said, no, this is from God and I'm going to pray over it and I'll reconsecrate it to the one true God and I'm going to eat it with Thanksgiving and I'm not going to worry my pretty little head about it because this is God's world. This is God's providence to me that there was this meat in the market and I bought it and I ate it. And 
you had other Christians who said, nope, it is tainted forever and I cannot eat that and nobody should eat that. And Paul's letter basically says, you know, you have some Christian brothers who have a weaker conscience, some who have a stronger conscience. For the one who has a stronger conscience, he may be able to partake, he may be able to not partake, but he shouldn't do anything to destroy his brother. Everybody should be fully persuaded in their own mind, but don't use your liberty to either eat or not eat as an occasion to cause your brother to stumble or to destroy your brother. You should be doing what you're doing, not just in faith, but also in love for your brother in Christ. And I think it behooves us to remember that with regards to this disagreement within the church as to how or whether we should get involved in politics. Now that said, let's take another step back and let's talk about what do the scriptures say regarding biblical uh, political involvement. You look at Jeremiah 29.7 for just one instance, and you have the prophet Jeremiah writing to the Jews who have been carried away to Babylon in exile. And he is speaking the word of the Lord to them. This is a prophetic word from the Almighty. It is not just his opinion. And he says, to seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You're supposed to be praying for the city and its welfare, and you're supposed to be seeking the welfare of the city to which God has brought you. Now, in the case of those exiled Jews, they were exiled. They were living in a foreign pagan land that did not worship God in spirit or in truth. And you could ask the question on the front end, well, why would you pray for the welfare of the city, which is oppressing you, which is mistreating and maligning you, which has conquered your people? Well, the simple answer to that question is because God said to, because that is part of the way that you are honoring and representing and obeying God to do it because he said to. But another reason I think is because God says in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That is to say, there's nothing whatsoever untoward about seeking our own welfare. In that same chapter, it talks about building houses and living in them, planting gardens so that you can eat their produce, taking wives, having children, giving your children away in marriage so that they can have children also, multiplying and not decreasing. A similar sentiment to what is communicated to Adam and Eve and to Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. All of these ideas that God is communicating to his people consistently throughout his word carry on to the New Testament where the word that is used in the Greek for church that we now translate in the English and we use commonly as church is this word ekklesia. And ekklesia, it is interesting, and I think very few American Christians know this, that word ekklesia is actually the same word that was used to describe the assembly of citizens in a Greek city-state for instance, Athens, if you have the assembly of Athenian men to get together and talk about the business of the city, we've got Persians invading again. What are we going to do about that? We've got the Spartans who are at our borders trying to conquer us. What are we going to do about that? We've got a plague. What are we going to do about that? And all of this assembling was for the purpose of discussing what we should do together as a polis, as a city, as a group of people. And isn't it interesting 
that the word that is translated now as church was ecclesia. It was chosen not accidentally, but on purpose and intentionally. All scriptures got breathed and suitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, we have this word ecclesia, and I think, I believe, my conviction is that part of the reason why that word is used to describe the church is that we are supposed to be letting our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, not just as individual Christians, but as assembled bodies of Christians. We have that same idea reinforced when Paul talks about the body being comprised of many different members, and that we should not be saying to one another, I have no need of you because you're not the same body with the same gifting, the same capabilities, the same talents that I have. God gave different talents, different giftings to the different members of the body so that they work together so that they do need one another. And that in working together, they're representing some beautiful truth that God wants the wider world to see about his people and his purposes and his plans and his character that glorifies God, but you can't escape. You can't miss when you really dive deep into it. When you're really a Berean about this, you can't miss that in decision-making as a group of people, you have politics. Politics literally is the business of the polis. That is the ecclesia. That is what the ecclesia does. We don't just gather and sit on our thumbs and sing songs and play harps. We gather together and we discuss what should we do about this? What should we do about that? How do we let our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven? I, I want to bring up two points here. Number one, I just got done saying that we are laymen and we don't know Greek and Hebrew. And then you dive oh, into sorry. Greek. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nice timing there, by the way. Sorry, yeah, that was it. I, I just exhausted my expertise on Greek. Yeah, yeah. So basically what you're saying, just to kind of recap that, is in Paul's example of meat sacrifice to idols, you're saying we need to be convinced in our own mind of what we're doing. Um, did I get you right? Because the other aspect of that is not offending our brother, not offending the weaker brother that would seem to indicate on the surface, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, sure. um, that would seem to indicate on the surface that if people, if Christians, like let's say you're in John Piper's church and he's out there saying, no, um, this is wrong to be involved in politics, especially if you're on the wrong side and you support Donald Trump, oh my goodness, you are, this is not good. Should you say, well, okay, well, you know what? I don't want to offend my brother in Christ, John Piper, so I'm going to, I'm not going to be engaged in that if I'm in his church. Is that, I mean, uh, respond to that, sure. that criticism of that point. Sure. Yeah, no. And, and that's a great point because very often when that passage about meat off to idols is brought up, that is exactly what is meant by it in shorthand. And everybody just nods and says, oh, okay, yes. Uh, but you have also other scripture to interpret that passage about meat offered to idols with. For instance, we read in Galatians about Paul confronting and rebuking the apostle Peter to his face in front of everybody. And not only does he do it there, but he writes it down in his letter to the church in Galatia. He writes about having to confront and rebuke Peter at Antioch when, when Peter stopped 
eating with and associating with the Gentile Christians. These Gentiles had not been circumcised. Of course, they were not Jews by birth. And you had the Judaizers come to town and say, you guys all have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the church. And Peter is afraid of the Judaizers when they come to town. He doesn't want to upset them. He doesn't want to offend them. He doesn't want to do that thing that Paul is talking about when he talks about meat offered to idols. And yet he's showing partiality. And yet he's compromising on what the gospel actually is. And so Paul sets not only the Judaizers uh, straight, and not only these uh, Gentiles who are feeling conflicted and maybe a little offended and a little wounded, a little hurt, a little confused, he sets it straight for them. He sets it straight for Peter as well. And nowhere in that is Paul trying to destroy Peter. He's not trying to tear him down. He's not trying to use his liberty and his freedom in Christ as an occasion to destroy his brother or to trip him up. What he's trying to do, and he does do by God's grace, is he sets things right again. He actually is building Peter up. He is building the Gentile believers in Christ up. He is building up his audience in Galatia and the Galatian church up. He's edifying them by being a Berean about these things, these statements and these actions about whether they accord with what God's word says. And I would say so also if there is a Tim Keller or a John Piper who I believe is badly mistaken on this, come let us reason together. Let's not use our difference and our distinction here where we disagree about this as an opportunity to abuse them and to mistreat them and slander them and tear them down and tear anybody down that respects or admires them. But let's use this as an opportunity to dive into what God's word says and let's let iron sharpen iron. And that might be a test for us if we are in the right, that we are doing so with gentleness and respect, where we also read in the New Testament, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. That little caveat there at the end qualifies how we respond. We don't just get to respond with sharp elbows thrown like this is a, a game of street ball, you know, <laughs> No rules, no fouls. No, that is part of how we are being Bereans is we're checking ourselves. We're being humble before God. We're not using this as an occasion to be puffed up with knowledge or building up with love. I would say that's how we should be responding to our fellow Christians who disagree on this. Use it as an opportunity to get into God's word and to build them up and to build ourselves up in truth towards the end of good works. I, yeah, and to go along with that, also in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And assuming that we believe that Christians, some Christians in particular, are called to serve in political office, um, that would indicate that they're to do that with all their heart for the glory of God. You don't just separate those two. Or if you're called to be a sports announcer, you don't just, you're not just using that platform and saying, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to enter into any sort of biblical discourse, or I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to separate. I'm going to go to church on Sundays. And then I work, I'm at work. It's about being 
a missionary where God has placed you. I think that's what that verse is talking about, really, I mean, in part, at least. And then also, 1 Corinthians 6.5 says, uh, you know, it asks, he asks uh, when dealing with believers who have uh, filed a lawsuit against one another, uh, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Well, politics is not just about, oh, should we put a road in here? Should we tax? There's a lot about interpersonal conflict and, and dealing with that. And who better to put into positions of political office than Christians who, who have a grasp and understanding and an appreciation for the law of God, for uh, they have the wisdom to apply it, they fear the Lord, and also then uh, uh, an appreciation for the underlying constitution of America, which um, derives its power from, from God, right? Mm. Yeah, right, right. Um, what about the business of politics? That's the other objection we really get into. It's not just, I, I don't think, I, I think if you really press people who believe that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, I, I don't think it's as much the idea of governance as it is uh, politics itself, because we, we associate politics with dirty, underhanded deals, shrewd moves, et cetera. And that really does ask a good question. Um, hmm. You know, as we're trying to approach politics with a Christian perspective, as we're trying to be salt and light, um, what about the business of politics? Because I'll throw back an example uh, that uh, I love to use. William Wilberforce is credited with abolishing slavery in England. And obviously there was a, was a group of people. It wasn't just him. But in 1805, or by 1805, they had presented 11 different bills that failed in parliament over a 15-year period, and all of them were designed to abolish slavery. In 1806, they changed their tactics, and they made they were at war with France, and they created the Foreign Slave Trade Abolition Bill. And what they did was, the, the language of it was to ban the import of slaves by British traders into territories belonging to foreign powers. And it was designed to hurt France. Uh, everyone on the surface saw it as that. And it took until the third reading in order to really kind of understand what was going on here. But it was a backdoor move that is credited with the eventual abolition of slavery. But it was a shrewd move. It was a it was a maneuver, and there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with that type of thing. They, well, on the one hand, they praise William Wilberforce and say, "Oh, he abolished slavery," but he didn't abolish slavery through uh, necessarily through these convincing means. He just convinced convinced them of the evils of slavery. He got it passed. He got everything started by a backroom maneuver. And then stayed silent about the about the true implications of it, and we see that all the time in politics. How is a Christian supposed to justify some of these backroom maneuvers and some of the politicking that goes on, or we'll, I call it maybe the verb politics, where you're playing politics? Um, that seems to be a land a, a, a field of landmines, and. Does does the fact that we have to navigate that necessitate that we simply say, you know what, there's there's too much there. Let's avoid it as Christians because we're going to ruin our testimony at some point. For a lot of Christians, the answer is yes. 
And I think there's two problems here. One is in assuming a great many things about our sense of propriety uh, that are maybe not biblically based. And what I mean by that is, again, you know, a phrase that I used in our last episode, Veggie Tales Theology, where we have this very sanitized view of conflict in the scriptures because we were maybe watching too much Veggie Tales and not doing enough diligent uh, studying of what God's Word actually says. You know, we need to forget that, you know, the, the, the veggies were slapping each other with fish. And remember, you had real people, real flesh and blood people that were going to war and they were fighting and they were killing and they were dying and they were suffering. And this is real stuff. This is not make-believe. This is not, uh, you know, flannel graphs. So that is one thing here. And I don't mean to be offensive or rude to those who have a very high sense of propriety. You know, we, we read when Paul writes about what love is and is not to the Corinthian church, Love is not rude, but it's also not easily offended. And so we need to not be easily offended, I would say. But another thing too is we see in the New Testament, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And I think that would be a test for some of these maneuvers that are considered underhanded or uh, indirect is, was Wilberforce, for instance, acting out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Was his trying to bring an end to the slave trade? Selfishness, was that vanity on his part? I would say, no, that's just my personal take on it. From what I know of the story, that was not him just trying to grandstand and make much of himself. He wasn't abolishing slavery so that he could now own all the slaves. He was trying to abolish slavery and the many, many abolitionists who were Christian ministers and Christian lay people who felt convicted that this is not okay. This is not going to be okay with a holy and righteous God that made these people in his image, just like he made us in his image. We are going to have to give an account for how we treated other people made in God's image. And we claim to be Christians. And this is not okay for an ostensibly Christian nation like Great Britain to engage in this kind of behavior and for it to be sanctioned and protected similarly with abortion. You know, in our day, abortion is the single greatest evil perpetrated in the United States of America. Everything else, I think, is bad that is contrary to God's word. But you have to start with the idea that people are made in God's image and that we ultimately give an account to God for how we treat the least of these. And if there was an opportunity to abolish abortion, in America that involved some kind of a sideways uh, trick of sorts, would I say I am doing that out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Or would God smile on that? Do I find any evidence in the scriptures that God would be, un- would, would be displeased, that he would be unhappy with me bringing an end to abortion through a backdoor maneuver and a a clever machination. Uh, I personally don't, but I would turn the question around on those who so often object that the first ones to raise an objection when something political and political maneuver is pulled to accomplish a good end. Is it possible that some of these objections that are raised are actually 
raised from selfish ambition and vain conceit. And what I would compare that to is the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees that Jesus rebuked when he said, you tithe out of your spice rack, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Is it possible, maybe, just maybe, that sometimes our holier-than-thou standards of propriety where politics are concerned are derived from a desire to look and sound very pious while accomplishing nothing? Okay, when you, and when you're talking about uh, the pride issue, going back to your statement from the last podcast, you, know, you brought up pride as one element uh, that could explain the political divide in the church. I thought of immediately Dennis Prager, something he wrote uh, to the Never Trumpers, and he was responding to specifically someone we've we've talked about here, and that's Jonah Goldberg and his Never Trumpism. And he said, "Beware, because you have staked your reputation on Donald Trump's failure, and now." you have a vested interest in it. And now the, the farther you get into your never Trumpism, the harder it is going to be to back out of it and say, I was wrong, such as what Glenn Beck did, where he, he came out later and said, I was wrong. I, I thought it would go one direction. It did not. I apologize. On, uh, you know, I apologize to the president for uh, my never Trumpism essentially saying I, I doubted him. I, I cast a lot of aspersions on him that proved to be unfounded. So I'm backing off that. That showed a moment of humility for someone like that. And I think mm -hmm. that uh, I, I think that is a a proof that pride definitely does play into that. Yeah, no, and that's a really good point. I think Glenn Beck, his stock in my mind actually went up uh, a great deal when he was willing to say, you know what? I misjudged him. I was wrong. I thought he was going to get in there. He was going to do all these bad things. I didn't think he was going to do any of the good things he was telling us he was going to do when he was running for office. He's done a really good job, actually. Um, that was to Glenn Beck's credit. And unfortunately, too, Jonah Goldberg's book, Liberal Fascism, I mean, it was very, very awakening and very illuminating for me. He did a great job of identifying with foresight what was coming down the pike and laying out the history of things and analyzing and, and uh, portraying that in a clear cut way. And yet you have to kind of look to the end. And I think that's something we should be remembering when pride is getting in the way of us reevaluating our stances on things does that honor God? Is that pleasing to God? Is that in line with what the scriptures say? I mean, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty look before a fall. Even if we're right, pride can really set us up for a bad time of it. And I think you're right. I think there's a lot of folks that have staked their reputation on it. And what they care about more than anything is the reputation. They might use the word testimony within the church, but what they really mean is reputation and not necessarily in a, this is for the gospel sort of a way. I mean, that can be, that can be difficult and God is ultimately the judge. We have to work that out between ourselves and him. May the Lord convict me if I'm more concerned about my own selfish pride than I am about my testimony from a Christian standpoint, from a, a loving God and loving my fellow man standpoint. 
But that is something we should be asking ourselves, each one of us, all of us, is, is this really about testimony? Is this about being fruitful or is this about my ego? Right. And I, I think that's, that's been traditionally one of the main criticisms. And let's, let's, talk, let's talk personally. Let's talk about um, just the blogging and writing uh, when we started on the rocks a number of years ago and, uh, and podcasting. The danger exists that we're going to be writing from selfish ambition. We're going to be podcasting from, from that place. Oh, if someone praises me for something I did and taking real pride in that and saying, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm some big person now. There, there's always that danger exists. However, the way that, uh, the way that I approach it is to say, okay, that, that doesn't preclude me from that activity. The fact that the danger exists the fact of the matter is I know going into a podcast or going into writing something that my tendency is then going to be to want to take pride in that myself. However, or, or, or on the other side of things, say something that is not loving. But I think the response is not to avoid that activity altogether and say, well, the, the chances of me saying something offensive um, are, is that I could do that. So I'm going to just avoid that altogether. I think that rather we should train ourselves to do the activity while not taking the pride in it, while not saying things that are unloving or, or focusing on saying things that are loving and practice doing the right thing. And that really comes down to what I think, circling back to what you said a little while ago, not everyone is, uh, not everyone is gifted to be a politician. Not everyone is, is, is given the same skill set to, uh, do the same things. Uh, you know, First Corinthians—it's a goldmine for today's podcast because we've been touching on it a lot. But you know, Paul in First uh, Corinthians twelve says, "Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone." And I remember reading just recently in uh, I think it was Numbers or Deuteronomy, one of those books where uh, they were building the temple and God was giving instructions and he, he outlined, Hey, here are these craftsmen that I have specifically designed. I've given them the knowledge to, for this stonework or for this, uh, you know, weaving together of these materials. I think God puts us and he calls us to the field he wants us to go into. And then our job is not to say, well, wait, that field is full of danger, God. I'm going to disengage from it. I'm, not, I'm going to choose not to, to engage in that because I might fall. I think, that the, I think the response should be we accept that, we embrace that, and then we work at doing it without the failing, without, like, for example, in politics. You do so without uh, while being loving, you do so without the backroom deals that uh, that profit you and you alone, where where you're not working for, uh, you know, in, in, like in William Wilberforce's uh, example, you're not working for your own personal gain. I think that should be the standard as opposed to avoidance. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you you mentioned just even the exercise of blogging and podcasting. I've been thinking here lately as I'm trying to get better at and more skillful at editing my audio, all of that is to say, I have to edit my audio 
And I never realized just how imperfect and imprecise my communication is sometimes until all of a sudden I'm recording what I think is a worthy thought and I, I'm going to share this and it's going to be really great. And then I go back and I listen through it again. And it's like looking in the mirror when you very first wake up. It's like, oh, my hair is a mess. I've got some drool that's dried on the side of my face. And you, you have to do that before you go out. <laughs> you have to look at yourself. Hey, I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to comb my hair. I'm going to wash my face. I'm going to put on some clean clothes. And, and that process has played itself out over and over and over again as we write things and we publish them and you're getting ready to publish and you're thinking, oh, wow, okay, somebody's going to see this and they're going to read it. And either they're going to maybe be misled if I say the wrong thing and I'm not correct in this, or they're going to think I'm an idiot. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or, let's, let, let's take an example both of us recognize from the oil field, right? Um, when I go to a site, um, I don't look at it and say, you know what, this is a dangerous site. There's high pressure lines. There's the possibility that something could go wrong. And if it goes wrong, it could go wrong in a very bad way. I'm going to avoid it. I'm just going to tell my boss, no. It's actually on those days, and especially when I go to plants and I calibrate meters and do gas sampling at the plants where you have 12 inch high pressure lines with you know, 80 million cubic feet of gas flowing through it a day. Those are the times when I pay the most attention to safety. And I think mm. I've, I approach the, I think that's, you know, as I think through how a Christian approaches politics, I think it's kind of the same deal. The more risk there is, or the more chance there is of, of being able to do something underhanded or go along with the flow and, and play dirty and do things for yourself. I think that for Christians, that should cause us the more to uh, approach each day with with more sober mindedness regarding the scripture and saying, "Hey, Lord, I'm 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 engaging in an activity where I could take a lot of pride in this. Please protect me from that pride." And that's it's part of the Lord's prayer, isn't it? He, uh, mm -hmm. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the from the evil one. Um, that's the that should be, I think, our motive going into these high risk areas like politics. Um, we're going to have to wrap up here soon uh, for this for this podcast, but I want to throw out one more question uh, yeah. that I frequently hear, one more criticism of Christians entering politics, and that is this question. And I say limited time, but this could be a two-hour-long discussion, and that is, <laughs> respond to this, we should not legislate morality. Because after all, the worst possible thing is that America becomes a moral nation, right? I mean, you don't want to live in a moral neighborhood, do you? <laughs> So, but there's, a, I mean, in all seriousness, no, a lot of people say we can't legislate morality. How do you respond to that? Good luck with that. Good luck. Just try not. Uh, you can't. I mean, it, it, there, it is impossible. And actually, as a Christian, we should be looking at Romans 13 in a new light as we have a government now, which is going to be dominated by the Democratic Party, which is not of God, which is not biblically uh, authentic and uh, reliable and faithful. As we have a government over us, we need to be remembering Romans 13 and not in the ways only that so many Christian pastors are trying to tell us to, where you submit. They focus on that word, submit to the governing authorities. Well, wait a second. Let's pause a second. What does it say that the purpose of government is? The governing authority is a minister of God, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 is a minister of God to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. 
Well, that's morality, folks. That is morality right there. That is good and evil. And we cannot have a faithful minister of God in the Romans 13 governing authorities mold if there is no knowledge of right and wrong, if there is no standard of good and evil. Without any standard of good and evil, then it's just random punishments. It's random acting out and tantrum throwing. It is negligence. It is dereliction of duty. It is letting good people be destroyed. It is rewarding those who are evil. And that is not what the idea is. If we have a responsibility in this to have representative government, if there's any truth to that being part of our, our governing system still, then we need to be involved in a way that brings greater faithfulness that abides by Jeremiah 29 7, where we're seeking the welfare of the city. Well, how do we seek the welfare of the city where government and representative government is concerned? We appoint representatives who are going to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. Well, that means we need to know from God's word what is good and evil. We need to know righteous morality according to God's word and not just rationalism, not products of the enlightenment where man is the measure of all things. No, God's word is the measure of all things. Right. Well, and, and the challenge to someone who says we shouldn't legislate morality is, can you name a single law that is not moral, that, that has nothing to do with morality? Because the reason you require law is because you have disputes, right? I mean, uh, I mean, think about, uh, what the first amendment, the right to free speech, right? Uh, is that not a moral issue? Is the right to own, keep, and bear arms that that has morality written all over it? Uh, the, the frequent people who who argue against it argue on moral grounds. The thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments, the uh, civil rights legislation, all of those are moral. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was a moral. Uh, he, Abraham Lincoln used a moral rationale from the Bible: all men are created equal; our rights are derived from God. I think that, uh, therefore, I think that really then argues in favor of a point we previously made, which was who better to serve in the legislation of morality than the Christian? Who better be involved in this, in the public discourse, in the, um, in the talking and the discussing about it? Who better to be involved in that than Christians? We're, we're the prime candidates for this. Um, and yet so many people either avoid it because of the pitfalls or they choose to stay silent because of the backlash against it, or uh, they just bow out entirely because, uh, you know, some of them from a standpoint of they don't, they don't feel called to that arena and that's fine. Um, but I always say, uh, you know, Dennis, or I, I don't always say this, Dennis Prager has said this and I appreciate it. And that is, there are two types of people, the fighters and those who support the fighters. And I think that's important for those who are not called into the, uh, into the arena of public discourse uh, politically or called to political office, is that those of, those of us who, who are not called into that, we should really be looking to support those who are called because it's a, it's a very hard uh, job. It's a very difficult position to be in because, as we've noted, there are lots of landmines there. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I think as you brought up earlier, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he asks, is there not any among you who has wisdom to judge these matters? Do you not know we will judge angels? 
how much more so matters pertaining to this life? Well, that right there tells me if we have an opportunity to serve like Daniel, to serve like Joseph, and even in a pagan nation like Babylon or Egypt, if we have an opportunity to be magistrates or administrators or whatever, we should do so to God's glory. Amen. <laughs> yeah, well said. Well, we're out of time again for today. Um, I want to thank everyone out there for listening. I hope you tune in again for our next podcast as we continue to explore the issues that divide our country and our church. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions regarding the show or would like to drop us a comment, you can find us on the web at www.onthe.rocks or on Facebook at On The Rocks Blog. Thanks for listening and have a good day. Music for today's podcast is brought to you by bensound.com, royalty-free music.